<laughs> so tonight's message is a review of lesson 11, and this will cover Genesis 41 through 45, second to the last message. Let's dig in. Uh, in the last message, I talked to you about three areas of failure that might impact your life and your thinking, and that would be a failure of imagination, a failure of faith, and a failure of the knowledge of God. And I suggested that if you can fix your knowledge of God and, and emphasize understanding him better, then everything else falls in the line. Um, the failure of imagination will get wrapped up, the failure of faith, because God will increase all of that in your life. So I want us to be thinking along those lines again as we move into this message. But I have another question for you tonight. And the question is, how long is too long? How long is too long? Because isn't that how we feel when we want or need something from God? How long is too long? When we've made our plans, um, when we've thought things out, when we feel like we've done the right things and we've even made sacrifices, we've been hurt, maybe. We've lost a job. We've lost a loved one. Um, our health. We've lost our health or lost financial security. And how long is too long to wait for a restoration? We have an internal clock that's ticking away at some point, we fix what we think is a reasonable timeline of what we think the due date should be. Like, this could be resolved. Here's what it seems like. It could be resolved by this time. And why not? We're born that way. We're born on timelines. You've got a due date as soon as you found out you're pregnant with your child and your mom did with you as well. We're wired for that end period of time. But what happens if the date comes and goes and we don't have what we expected to get? We don't have the restored health. We don't have the reconciled relationship. We don't have that promotion. We don't have the recognition we were hoping for. I want us to th be thinking about that type of timeline and our expectations along those lines as we go through our passages from tonight. So Joseph was born in Paden Aram four years into his father's 20-year working for Laban, right? So his older brothers reigned then in age from 19 down and um, they were young men to toddlers when he was born. We're not 100% sure on all that. But little baby jo Joseph would have been too young to remember. His family was packed up and they fled in the night away from Laban. Remember that story. And probably also Joseph would be too young to remember when his dad wrestled with the angel before he was reconciled with his uncle Esau. And he would have been too young probably to even remember that his older brother Simeon and Levi took revenge on Shechem in this violent slaughter. And Joseph might have been a toddler when his brother Benjamin was born. We're not exactly sure about his age and his mother died, but he was probably old enough to feel the pain of that loss early in his life. And not long after he lost his mother, his grandfather Isaac dies, and he's old enough to remember at this point then the family reunion at Machpelah and even meeting up back again with Uncle Esau. And he knows his great-grandparents, Abraham and Sarah, are also buried in that same spot. He would have heard the stories. And so 17 years pass, and he's old enough to know and to retell the stories. And he knows how God has called out his great-grandfather, Abraham, out of paganism. And he would have heard about his great-uncle Lot and the destruction of Sodom. And he knows the stories of trouble in Egypt with Abimelech and how his, great, how his grandfather Isaac was offered up as a sacrifice God provide for him just in the nick of time. He knows about the ladder and the limp story, right? How his dad sees the angels going up and down between heaven and earth and how he got that limp and a new name after wrestling with God. He knows about his family. He knows his family is special. Troubled? Sure. <laughs> Dysfunctional, if they had a word like that back then, sure. Uh, but God had appeared to his great-grandfather, his grandfather, and to his own father in dreams and visions and personal appearances. And now... He's having dreams of his own. Dreams which only intensify the anger and the jealousy that his brothers had for him as they sell him off to die a slave in Egypt. But instead of dying in obscurity, he's blessed by God. And he rises up to leadership not only as a slave, but to be only as a slave, only then to be accused of attempted rape and sent off to prison. But God is with him in prison, isn't he? And God places Pharaoh's men in prison and gives them these troubling dreams. And who but Joseph, the dreamer, rightly interprets each dream. And all this, Joseph never shakes his fist at heaven. He only has one request, and he states it at the end of that passage. He says, remember me when it goes right with you. Remember me. And so Genesis chapter 40 closes, and Joseph 
hopes seem to be closed as well, because not only is he not remembered, but for emphasis, the author adds, he's forgotten. <laughs> and as if he didn't matter at all. And we all know that he does matter. But what does Joseph know? I'm in a pit again. Sold by evil brothers, betrayed by the boss's wife, Joseph, who we know will someday save the day, not just the day, the world actually, the great grandson of the friend of God and the son of the one who wrestled with God remains in prison. Chapter 41 picks up after two whole years. How long is too long? Because it's been two years, but it's also been another, what Joseph can't know, what no one could know, that God has been preparing everyone and every situation for a night that is going to turn the course of history. And it all happens when Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. He has this dream in two parts. The first part has to do with a set of cows, seven attractive and plump cows who are devoured by seven ugly and thin cows. Your version might read bad looking or scrawny or sickly. Uh, but in Hebrew, it's actually the root word is evil. Evil cows, the evil cows. And this harkens us back to the first time we hear of evil in the garden. And I want you to keep that in mind how God is bringing Genesis to a bow and wrapping it up at the end. They're evil cows, cows, and they're devouring seven attractive and plump cows. And then seven plump and good ears of grain are swallowed up by seven thin and these ruined ears of grain. Verse eight. So in the morning, Pharaoh's, what does it say? Spirit was troubled. Pharaoh's spirit was troubled. And so he sent and he called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of the wise men. And Pharaoh tells him his dreams that there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Of course there's not. God's at work here. But who hasn't had a crazy dream in their life? We've all had an odd dream or two. Maybe even dreams that we thought, that really feels like it means something. You know, is my brain thinking through and processing this scenario in my life? Or is it just bad, you know, pizza? <laughs> but who actually wakes up and thinks, hey, this dream needs something and I'm gonna mean something, I'm gonna go get answers. And you search out you know, a magician or someone to get an answer from, right? Look for answers from the people who know best. This is what Pharaoh ends up doing with his dream. And rather than just kind of thinking about it, I'm like, that was a crazy dream and telling his, you know, Mrs. Pharaoh or something about it. No, this is God again at work. God has caused Pharaoh's spirit to be trouble. And we know about another Pharaoh coming along soon that God's going to work in that guy's heart too and move him where he needs to be moved, Right? And Pharaoh can find no satisfaction. He gets all the answers and nothing satisfies. That's God at work in Pharaoh's heart and in his mind. We read that he sent and he called for all those magicians of Egypt, all the wise men, he tells them his dreams. No one can interpret them. And that doesn't mean that there's no one who tried. They all tried. They all tried to interpret his dreams. And they're all kind of on the spot, right? Maybe they'd be the one with the right answer. And Pharaoh would go, yeah, that's totally it. And maybe they really contrived inside their mind, like, I got the right answer here. Or maybe all of them were kind of confused and they were saving face and trying to save their necks and gave it the best that they can do and hope that maybe Pharaoh would believe it and eh, maybe it would all pan out in the end somehow, right? All, right? all those explanations, everything that's given to him, no one was able to give him the satisfaction that Pharaoh needed. He's completely unsatisfied. Pharaoh knows in his spirit and his spirit is troubled. This is a significant dream and no one can give him an answer. It reminds me of infomercials. You've seen infomercials? Infomercials always set up this crazy scenario. So you are awakened in your mind, in your heart, of a need that you have that you probably never realized you had. Or you're watching it going, that's exactly what happens in my life. But the scene usually opens up with some lady, it's black and white, and she's got a kid on her hip, and a kid tucking out her leg, and her hair is a mess, and they're screaming and crying, and she's reaching for the cupboard, and she opens it, and what comes out? She gets attacked by bowls tumbling with lids and bowls and everything, and the infomercial has all the solution to keep your bowls organized, right? They present, make sure you know your need, and then they offer uh, a solution. Or a milk carton that you can't open, it's too hard to open, so here's a spout you can poke in, and ta-da, now you can pour your milk. Ah, isn't that great? 
Advertisers know that identifying a need or even creating a need is a perfect opportunity for them to provide the solution. Enter Pharaoh. He doesn't just need to understand his dream. He needs to know what he should do about it, and he has a sense that there's something more. He needs more than information. Pharaoh needs wisdom, and nothing and no one available to him is able to provide that. Now he's open to solutions. Now he's open to solutions that he might not otherwise have considered. Enter the cupbearer. His memory is jogged. He remembers his offenses today, he says. Now, this is really actually a risky thing for the cupbearer to do, to remind the one who can still throw him into prison of his previous offenses. But this leads into the story of how he meets this Hebrew slave while he was in prison, and this slave accurately can interpret dreams. So, in the two-year delay of Joseph not being remembered, but being forgotten, we see the sovereignty of God. The delay of two whole years actually works out in Joseph's favor, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. If two years previously, that cupbearer, fresh from prison, comes up to Pharaoh and says, you've got to meet this Egyptian, this uh, Egyptian slave. Actually, he's a Hebrew and he's a convicted criminal, but he's awesome. And he can interpret with wisdom and he can give you answer to your dreams. Mm -hmm. At that time, Pharaoh had no need. And he had no reputation from this cupbearer guy just fresh back out of prison. And he would have been like us the week before, fill in the blank with any scenario that happened in your life. The week before that moment happened in your life, that thing, that event, that situation, you've got no pressing need. You don't really need all that wisdom. Everything is kind of going fine. But that moment happens. And like Pharaoh, maybe you're troubled in spirit. But that's where we find Pharaoh, troubled in his spirit. His best advisors can't give him the wisdom that he needs, so he's willing to submit and open up circumstances to the most outlandish possible solution. A scandal, really. Consulting for wisdom from a Hebrew slave, a criminal. The reason that crisis can be opportunities for God to get through to us is that the Lord always has to bring our pride low enough to get us ready to receive even a scandalous message. Like the message of the gospel. It's scandalous. The message of Jesus Christ crucified and our pride in our way of thinking about how things should go, Jesus shouldn't get crucified. We don't want Christ crucified. So the Lord's got to reduce our pride in any way that he can, in any suffering, any troubling, so that our spirit is troubled enough to make us desperate enough to look for that kind of wisdom. Enter Joseph. Verse 14, Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved him, washed him up, changed his clothes, comes before Pharaoh, Verse 15, Pharaoh says, I had a dream. There's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said, when you hear a dream, you can just interpret it. So to Pharaoh, Joseph is potentially a more talented wise man. Just another one of the smart guys, right? More talented magician. Maybe they can know these things down in Hebrew land, wherever this guy comes from, right? But Joseph is bold. I mean, this is Joseph's big opportunity. He's got the ear of Pharaoh, and he's bold. And he takes this opportunity not to put himself forward, but to put God before him. And he sets him straight, and he risks honesty, and he risks humility before God, not before Pharaoh, but before God. In verse 16, he says, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh, Elohim will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. <laughs> I've had a dream, there's no one who can interpret it. He, Joseph, hasn't heard the dream yet. And he is able to say in confidence, God's gonna not only answer this, but give you a favorable answer. Wow. Now Pharaoh speaks his dream. I told it to the magicians, none of them who could explain it to me, and they're all heads down and like, oh, you know, us, over in the corner but also listening and curious, what is this Hebrew slave guy gonna do? Joseph says to Pharaoh, Joseph, uh, Pharaoh explains the dreams, and Joseph says to Pharaoh, well, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. And take note of that, because he points to God over and over and over again. He's already said God's gonna give you a favorable interpretation. God's gonna re God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. 
It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do, verse 28, verse 32. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God. And God will shortly bring it about. Isn't that exciting that God gave Joseph not only the interpretation and understanding of the dreams, but God also put in, in Joseph's mind an understanding that it's double and that that means it's fixed by God. Because that's going to be really important to Joseph coming up later in the story, isn't it? But God and God and God again in the presence of all the wisest leaders, Pharaoh's court, Joseph points the world to God. Joseph wasn't a man who languished bitterly in prison. He did sit there for 13 years, but he didn't sit there wasting away, pitying himself, entitled, spinning around on the if-onlys, the why me thoughts, if he had, listen, there would be no room for God to teach him wisdom because his mind would have been so consumed with himself and what he feels like he's deserved in this life because people had done him wrong. That was truth. People had done him wrong. He was entitled to better in that mindset. There would have been no room though if he had sat all that time and thought only on those things, where does wisdom come from? This will give you the key of what he actually was thinking and doing all that time. For him to have the wisdom that he had, we have to understand, he had the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Joseph is ready then for this moment because he feared God more than he regretted his own life. And you can stop and listen right now and go back in time in your own mind to the decisions that you've made that brought you to this position and the relationships you have and the job that you have and the financial situation you're in and fill in the blank, whatever it is. And regret and this and that happened and then this and this person I didn't deserve. Or you can fear God. So God gives him not only the interpretation of the dream but inspires him to speak to Pharaoh about what's going to happen next. When you fear God, you have wisdom and a side of fries or boldness. You have wisdom and boldness, right? Verse 37, the proposal pleases Pharaoh, all of his servants. And Pharaoh says to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? And he's literally talking to this entire group that he should have been able to find a man who's saying all these things. Can we find a man like this? And they're like, uh, that's a rhetorical question, right? Nope, we can't. Pharaoh says to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning as wise as you. And Joseph is given power second only to Pharaoh and his and wife. And even in naming of his children, he honors God. Before the year of the famine came, verse 50, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of his firstborn, Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardships. He was forgotten, but God has made him forget all of his hardships and his father's house. And verse 52, the name of the second he called Ephraim, and God has made me fruitful. God has made me forget, and God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So Joseph's prospering, his family is suffering though. And Jacob hears about the food available in Egypt, and he sends his sons. And he says, dramatic as Jacob is, that we may live and not die. <laughs> probably wasn't too far from the truth. It was a really severe famine, as we know, that we may live and not die. But these words are important because they will come up again as we see a constant theme of reversals from here on out. And because Jacob allows his trauma and his fear to govern his decision, he sends only 10 sons. Consider this. Each would have been able to buy and bring back enough for the house that they represented. So by leaving Benjamin home, Jacob pressures his sons to carry an extra burden of another family member. Had Benjamin come with them, he'd have been able to bring back more food. But fear wins, and Ben stays back. Of course, we know that, verse 6, Joseph was a governor over the land. And not only that, he's personally involved. He's not just some governor man managing up in a palace. He's the one who sold all the people. He's interacting personally with all the people. So it makes sense that. Joseph's brothers came and bowed. And we get the first bow. Bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. And what's incredible, out of all the moments 
And in all the ways, in any scenario, do you think Joseph could have possibly imagined, and he had a good imagination, that this would be the scene? We all imagine how we might react, but verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized him, them, but he, and he had the presence of mind to hold back, doesn't he? And he doesn't reveal himself immediately. Instead, he, it says, treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? And they said, the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers. They didn't recognize him. Verse 9, and this is when he recognizes. This is when he remembers. Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Why? Because they're in mid-bow. They're all splayed out in front of him, just like in the dream. And there they are bowing. And Joseph accuses them of being spies, and he gets this outlandish plot going and gets them to reveal family details about Benjamin and, and even a mention about Joseph himself being dead because they say he is no more. We have this other brother, but he's no more. Joseph continues the ruse, says they'll be tested to see if they're really being truthful. Verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, reversing what his father had said. And he gives them his reason. And this is where we see Joseph's core. For I fear God. Do this and you will live. I fear God. The exact opposite of what his brothers had done and how they had lived. They did not fear God. And they caused in their mind death. Joseph speaks what we already know about him. He's where he's at because he fears God. And he'll expect the same from his brothers. If you're honest men, verse 19, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. And so your words will be verified. I'll know if you're being truthful, he says, and you shall not die. Hmm. Joseph is actually echoing the words again that his father had spoken to his own sons when they went to Egypt. But unlike Jacob, the only fear Joseph operates under is what? The fear of God. While the brothers are making sense of the whole situation, Joseph overhears them, admitting the truth out loud. Verse 21, oh, we're guilty. We saw the distress of his soul. And we get this detailed information about Joseph and the pit scene back in chapter 31 that wasn't listed there, that they saw the distress of his soul that he begged them, and we did not listen. You can just go back in that moment and hear Joseph screaming and begging for mercy. They didn't listen. And this is why distress has come upon us. Joseph's been gone and out of their life all this time. They don't recognize that that's Joseph right there. They're not seeing that. But they're going all the way back to this particular situation, and they're thinking in the same way that Maria did from The Sound of Music. Somewhere in my wicked and horrible youth, I must have done something bad. And this is what's happening. I got, I got what I deserve. Because that's how th their mindset thinks. They don't fear God. So there's no room in their theology. They don't have a correct theology to think about how God works. So all they go back to is this. And they're not thinking about being provided for or any of this. They're just going back to this moment, this distant moment. There's other sinful moments in their life, surely. I mean, Judah, hello. <laughs> Uh, and any number of other crazy things they must have done in all this long time. But they go back all the way, hop, skip, and jump over every other sin that they've ever committed since Joseph's been gone, and they go back to this one pivotal moment. Spe Pharaoh was troubled in his spirit, and these men are as well. Verse 22, Reuben answered them, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? <laughs> Reuben, you did not listen, and here comes the reckoning for his blood. Of course, Joseph hears all this and he understands this and he, and he leaves to cry it out in private. When he comes back, he imprisons Simeon. He entraps the brothers by putting their payment back in with the grain and one of them discovers the issue when they're down the road and immediately, it says in the word, at this their hearts failed them. <laughs> they're just, oh, what is going on? And they turn and they tremble to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? Now they bring up God after all of this? But it gets even worse. When they get all the way back home to dad and explain this terrible ordeal and why Simeon isn't with them, only then do they actually realize how bad it really is because to their horror, it isn't just money back in one sack. As they emptied their sack, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And they're terrified. And Jacob figures he may as well die. <laughs> 
And Ruben speaks up and it's kind of odd. And he's like, well, if we don't get this figured out, you can t- kill my two sons. <laughs> uh, it's, thanks. <laughs> maybe the sons run around here and say that. Or maybe they were, I don't know. But that's crazy. And, um, and Jacob's just unable to move forward at all. The scene closes. The family's with food, but they're left with paralyzing fear. Jacob says, basically, over my dead body. Right? No way will Benjamin go down to Egypt. Jacob's controlled by his fears completely. He refuses to risk harm to Benjamin. And it'll take more than time. It'll take less food to force Jacob to change his mind. Food has a way of doing that. It's a very strong motivator. All right? Chapter 43. Now the famine was severe in the land, and with that, so is fear. But fear when it is in abundance, and food, when it's lacking, are both really great motivators, of course. And Jacob tells the boys, all right, go back down to Egypt. And they remind him that Joseph had given them a no Benjamin, no food policy. <laughs> and on top of that, they have all this money. They have to figure out how to account for it, right? Verse 8, and Judah said to Israel, his father, Judah, 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 what are you going to say now? What are you going to do now? And you're like, Whoa, listen to what he says. Send the boy with me. We will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. Verse 9, and he, listen, I will pledge, I will be the pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Reuben offers his two kids if the mission fails. And here, Judah offers himself supreme and genuine sacrifice. So they take their gifts, a little bomb, a little honey, some gums, and myrrh, pistachio nuts, almonds. Verse 12, take double the money with you. Verse 13, take your brother. Arise, go again to the man. Verse 14, may God Almighty El Shaddai grant you mercy before the man. That's what they need. They need mercy. And may he send back your, older, your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. Wow. Fatalistic much, Jacob? <laughs> so God moves in this world. Often seem purposeless. Counterintuitive. We've all been there thinking, if I was in charge, this is how it would be. But God, in his providence, doesn't always answer our prayers by eliminating the object of our fear. Sometimes God in his providence organizes and orders circumstances in our life to push us into situations where the only option we have is to trust him, to trust in God Almighty. It's like every day he gives us an opportunity to wake up and say, I trust you, God. Every day. You don't know what's going to happen five minutes from now, let alone tomorrow. I trust you, God. I trust you, God. And that's rooted in a knowledge of who he is because he's trustworthy. He forces us to deal with our fears by putting us in something that we would never choose for ourselves. God's working to address all of the issues in our lives, all the issues in all of creation as he works things together for what? For the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, right? So Jacob here has been forced into a situation where he has had to do the thing that he fears the most by sending Benjamin to Egypt. Verse 16, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he tells his steward to make a feast for them. And his brothers aren't aware of this plan and they have no idea what's going on and they're afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. Like, why are we in Joseph's house? He can make a spectacle out of us. And they figure it's because of the money in their sack and they expect they're going to get punished. They explain the situation to the steward and the steward offers them the very thing that they were unable to give Joseph, if you remember, speaking in peace. The steward says, peace to you. Remember, Joseph's brothers in chapter 37 were unable to do what? Speak peace. And see, we have this reversal. Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. What? That's incredible. And you hear the echo in the steward's words of what Joseph had said. When Joseph testing them to see if they were honest men and telling them to bring the youngest, he had said, okay, do this, and you will live for what? 
I fear God. And now here, Joseph's servant says, don't be afraid. God has given you treasure. Realize this, realize this. Because Joseph fears God, Joseph's brothers have nothing to fear. Because Joseph fears God, Joseph's brothers have nothing to fear. In spite of all that they deserve because of the terrible evil they had done, God's giving them this treasure, not just of their money, but of grace and of mercy and peace. They're receiving this from God through Joseph. And Joseph comes, they present him with the gifts, they bow for the second time, he asks about their father. And they bow again, now for the third time, Joseph asks about Benjamin, and he blesses Benjamin. He says, God be gracious to you, my son. And that's it, that's it. Joseph can't contain himself. Verse 30, Joseph hurries out. His compassion grew warm for his brother. And isn't that how we are? Listen, the most difficult thing that you can possibly do sometimes is to speak blessing over the situation that's harming you. And Benjamin surely could have been a representation of that. Right? But it's the moment that he speaks this blessing over Benjamin that he loses it. And maybe God's calling you to do that today in your life, in your relationships, to come face to face with the very thing that's causing you the most pain and ripped you away from what you really had hoped for and longed for and to bless it. God be gracious to you and he's personal, my son. It's a beautiful moment, a beautiful, shocking moment. Imagine the brothers like, why is he singling out Benjamin? And imagine the shock of anybody else in your life surrounding you, they know what you're going through. They know how you're being treated. They know what you're dealing with. But somehow, you're able to speak blessing into that moment. That's going to be a testimony to everyone around you. Joseph leaves. His compassion grew warm for his brother. He sought a place to weep. He entered his chamber. He weeps there. You know, the same mercy that Jacob had actually prayed for is the mercy or the compassion that overwhelms Joseph so much that he has to actually leave the room in order to find a place to weep. Jacob's prayer is absolutely answered. And after Joseph composed himself, verse 32, he commands the the food to be served and Joseph eats separate from his brothers. And the account makes a point of this separation. Isn't it a little bit odd though? about the Egyptians being separated from the Hebrews? Like, why include this detail? Like, why really, really move in and make sure everyone understands? Well, consider the original audience of this account. Like, who's reading this? Who's hearing this account first? Wasn't you and me. Moses and the children of Israel, they had just escaped from Egypt 400 years after this moment, plus or minus. This is a foreshadowing of the hatred of the Egyptians against the Hebrews. They were an abomination to the Egyptians, and that'll lead directly to the Israelites' enslavement and eventually delivery from God. All right? So what moment from Joseph's account does this point back to? How does this reverse? Genesis 37, 25. In that moment, it's Joseph stripped of his cloak and alone in a pit while his brothers ate. Remember that in that account, that odd little addition, like, and his brothers just sat down and ate a meal? Like, that's rude. So here we are, and Joseph is clothed in royal robes as his brothers sit separated from him, and Joseph does something to make a point of this. His brothers weren't just fed. Joseph fed him, fed them. Verse 34, look what it says. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. You don't think there were shelves and pantries and kitchens available to bring the food from? But it was taken from Joseph's table. Joseph is personally involved in reversing what had been done to him. And again, reversing the moment, he makes sure that Benjamin's portion is five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him, which is Hebrew code for they partied hard. This is a drunken party. They got drunk. That's code right there. (laughs) Literally what that means. And so Joseph goes on to test his brothers, verses 1 through 13 in chapter 44. Right after the banquet, the brothers are preparing to go back to 
Canaan. I can imagine them maybe a little bit hungover. Like, did we dream that? Like, what happened last night? I don't know. Do you remember? I don't know. Benjamin got five times more, you know? And they're kind of like working it all off as they're heading out. Joseph commands a steward to fill their bags with food and fill their sacks also with their money. And in a twist, he then sets up his little brother, planting evidence, Joseph's own silver divining cup in his bag. So he'll be the one implicated in this high crime. And the pressure is on his brother. It's going to just increase. So the brothers head back home, but they haven't got that far down the road when Joseph sends his steward after him this time and instructs a steward to ask, why have you repaid evil for good? And isn't that exactly what they had done at the pit? God had been nothing but good to Jacob's family. Joseph hadn't done anything wrong to them. Joseph was doing the right thing and they repaid evil for good. At this they tear their clothes, verse 13, every man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city you said the sorry procession heading down, exact opposite of the procession that led Joseph away. This is a procession of, of shame, and what, what do we face? Verse 14, when Judah, Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell before him to the ground, fourth time bowing. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know? This is great. Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? <laughs> like, whoa. Notice that he said he could practice divination. He doesn't say, I used divination. He's messing with them. Surely the brothers had heard through the grapevine about Egypt and Pharaoh's right-hand man and how he interpreted these dreams and about the feast and the famine years. Even if they hadn't heard the tales about this leader, the idea of divination would have put more fear into their hearts. What else could this man know about them? Mm. Also, divination was really common in ancient Middle Eastern cultures, especially among leaders. Remember that Laban told Jacob he had learned by divination that the Lord had blessed him because of Jacob. Jacob's sons would have at least been aware of the practice and have known what divination was and whether or not Joseph actually used the cup for that purpose or not. But silent fourth-born Judah finally speaks up again. Did fear motivate him? Fear about what this man might know about them? They were innocent of the money and the cup crime, but guilty of so much more. Verse 16, and Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also whose hand the cup has been found. They're all innocent of this entire thing, but he's like, I'm done. I'm done fighting all this. We're, we're going to accept this, the guilt. God has found it out. Now, the, the word that Judah says is the word guilt. Judah isn't acknowledging or confessing the sin of this crime with the cups. He's not, because he didn't do it. He's talking about guilt. And he speaks for all the brothers. He lumps Benjamin in as well. And he offers them all to become his servants. And Joseph won't have it. Verse 17, but he said, well, far be it from me, because that would be really unfair, mm -hmm. right? That I should do this. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, you go, what? In peace to your father. In this test, what Joseph is testing and seeing is if they're going to betray and abandon Benjamin in the exact same way that they betrayed and abandoned him. Because what had been going on? Favoritism to Benjamin, favoritism to Benjamin, favoritism to Benjamin. Maybe they're just going to be the exact same guys. They're seeing some other guy, their brother being treated favoritively, and all right, they'll just walk away. He'd be left in captivity in Egypt. They did that before. No one's going to be the wiser. That worked out for them before. They could go back to their father. They could say, we tried our best, but this crazy Egyptian guy, and he wouldn't take, he'd only take Benjamin, and he, and he forced the rest of us to go home. I mean, they all heard their father's words. If I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. Dad's already kind of resigned. So Joseph showed great favor and also caused great trouble to Benjamin. Is that going to inflame their jealousy and their pride so they could just walk away from his brother, go sit down and eat? Have they truly changed? Enter Judah. Verse 18, oh, Judah. Judah went up to him. 
Judah reviews the entire situation. He explains that if Benjamin is taken, his father is going to die of a broken heart, basically. Judah tells Jacob about Joseph about the promise that he had made to Jacob. He says, verse 32, I became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I don't bring him back to you, I shall bear the blame for my father for all my life. And then Judah, the one who shepherd, uh, spearheaded selling of Joseph, the one who slept with his daughter-in-law, the one who has led a selfish life, offers to be the slave in Benjamin's place. Verse 33, he says, and let your servant remain instead of the boy. Judah has changed. He's no longer the self-serving, the greedy, the lustful man that he was. He's loving, he's faithful, he's honest, he's even noble. And something you can't miss here. I mean, really think about this. This moment, Judah's self-sacrificial love is a foreshadowing of the one who will come from Judah's family one day. The descendant who will be the ultimate and the final sacrifice, the lion of Judah himself, Jesus Remember that it was Judah who had the idea to make money off Joseph and sell him into slavery. It was Judah who hired a prostitute. There's no resemblance at all to Jesus Christ in these moments. There's no way that you would think, oh, he's going to be the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus, savior of the world. And yet, you really can hardly avoid the comparison. Judah stands in the place of his brother. Benjamin, who's been found guilty of a crime, he stands ready to take his place so that the beloved son can be reconciled to the father. Wow. Judah lays all his cards on the table. The silver cup's been found with Benjamin. Brothers have no hope of standing before the man who can practice divination. Judah speaks for all the brothers then when he implores the Egyptian ruler for mercy, but he offers himself alone as a substitute so Benjamin can be reconciled to the father. How will Joseph respond to Judah's request? Has he been able to forgive his brothers? Is he still holding a grudge? Is he ever holding a grudge? Will he have mercy on Benjamin? Or will he make his brothers pay for what they have done for him? Chapter 45, and Joseph can no longer hide his true identity from his brothers. Earlier, Joseph had been able to control his emotions in the presence. But now, Joseph tells everyone except his brothers to leave. Joseph's exact reason for sending everyone else out in the room is a little bit unclear. Maybe he doesn't want to embarrass his brothers by speaking about their crime in front of the Egyptians, right? A Hebrew wording suggests that Joseph wanted to express his emotions fully to his brothers, but he couldn't do it until the others had left the room. This is a private time. This is family reconciliation. Of course, Joseph wept so loudly that the whole household of Pharaoh ends up hearing it anyway. And then after all this time, Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers, I am Joseph. And before they can even process this, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer them, him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, all right, come here, come closer. Like he's up somewhere talking, and so he motions them to get closer. And they came near, and he said, I am, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Acknowledges who he is. He acknowledges their culpability, their crime. And now do not be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. What an incredible thing to say. You sold me. They're totally responsible. God sent me. God's totally responsible. Interesting. Let's take a look at Acts. Go ahead and hop over to Peter's big, amazing sermon in Acts chapter 2. Verse 22, men of Israel. Acts 2, 22. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. You killed him by the hands of lawless men, and God raised him up from the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held. And immediately after that, those people he's talking to, by the way, say, what do we do? What do we do now? What's Joseph doing? Listen, so important. So important. Listen, Joseph is making a claim about the nature and the purpose of the one true God. What has happened was all in the plan of Elohim. And he sees two aspects of what has happened to him. From one perspective, his brothers committed evil by selling him. You sold. You did this. But from the other, God sent. God accomplished good 
through sending him to Egypt. They did the evil, God did the good. Joseph moves in on exactly what God was doing and again points to God. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you. And it's so amazing, not just your lives, not just us right here in this room. This is bigger than us, guys. To preserve for you a remnant on earth. This is a really big statement. This is showing Joseph as a prophet. Joseph is, is speaking about bigger future things and he's giving very vague details about it. And listen, he says, and to keep alive for you many survivors. It was not you who sent me here, but God. And they're thinking, we, we totally did send you here. We did. We did that. Judas admitted the complete guilt that they all bear for that. And Joseph is saying, no, it's God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh. He says three different ways he's a leader. He's made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of all of his house, ruler of all the land of Egypt. Joseph, who's sitting at the right hand of the leader. You know, this word father that Joseph uses is actually the word ab. And it's actually better translated chief counselor or confidant or authority. He describes his authority and his position in those three ways. And he's saying basically that he has the trust of Pharaoh's ear. Verse 9, hurry up, hurry up, go tell. Sound familiar? <laughs> go to my father and say, thus says your son Joseph, God made me Lord of all Egypt. Make sure you get that message on point. This is about God, what God has accomplished. Come down to me, don't tarry. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Go, go, go. Make it quick. Joseph makes plans for them to live in the best of the land. Pharaoh approves, blesses Joseph's family. So Joseph not only demonstrates this great love, but great grace, and the brothers are fully restored. They had taken his clothes, they each received clothes. They sold him for silver, they received silver. Benjamin, um, Joseph was the favored, uh, he was mistreated. Benjamin was favored, blessed with five sets of clothing and 300 shekels of silver. Listen, there's something really significant here. And so let's go ahead and let scripture interpret scripture. What's the best commentary in the Old Testament? And guess what else? The Old Testament is as well. <laughs> so in Exodus chapter 21, verse 32, the, Moses gives laws uh, about slavery and the price of a slave and whatnot. And Joseph was sold into slavery by 10 of his brothers. And Exodus 21, 32 sets the value of a slave at 30 shekels of silver. Anyone doing math yet? And the penalty for selling a slave was 10 times the price. Then what is the total penalty? Well, it's basic math. It's 300 shekels of silver payable by each of the 10 brothers, basically. Benjamin, Joseph's younger brother, was not involved in that sale, so he has no obligation to pay the penalty. That's why he gets a 300. When Joseph, in his joy of being reunited with his family, decides to give gifts to all of his brothers, he settles on the convenient number of 300 shekels. Again, prophetic about the Mosaic law. This erases the 10 brothers' debt to him. Benjamin, who has no debt, winds up abundantly blessed, 300 shekels in his pocket. Verse 20, have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Then, verse 24, he sends his brothers away, and as they depart, he says to them, have fun storming the castle. <laughs> no, what do you say to your family as they leave your home? Drive have safe. a nice trip. Drive safe. Drive safe. See you soon. What does he say? Don't fight. Don't fight. <laughs> <laughs> I never say Why? After assuring them that they have no concern, nothing to worry about, why does he ad admonish them? What's that about? Well, the Hebrew word here is ragaz, and it can actually be translated agitated or provoking. He's aware of their tendency to overthink, to make bad decisions as a result of fixating on the worst possible scenario. They quarreled about over what was to happen to him at that pit. They couldn't imagine any good, and so they plotted his murder. They ended up selling him. Don't be agitated, he says. Remember, stay on message. This is God. This is God. You sold, God sent. His emphasis is they have a mission, and their mission is of hope. Their mission is reconciliation. And what they have to say is based on truth. They are eyewitnesses that Joseph is still alive. Jacob undoubtedly is going to have doubts to hear that his long-lost dead son is, in fact, alive. So Joseph charges his brothers, tell Jacob 
of all they've seen in Egypt, and don't lose sight of that. Verse 25, they went up out of Egypt, they came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart became numb, for he did not believe them. Wouldn't that be awful if the story ended there? He did not believe him. That can't be true. That's, there's no way. But they convinced him. They made sure he knew and he understood. And that gives us verse 28. And it also gives us a name. Israel. And Israel said, it's enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go. I will see him before I die. Up to this point, in his ignorance, in his unbelief, he's called Jacob. But now, in his belief, he's called by his new covenant-affirming name, Israel. Referring to Jacob with this national name, and you're going to see this especially in Lesson 12, is a reminder to us and to the original audience that this is a movement of a nation happening, a nation that represents a new humanity. And they're moving down to Egypt. Jacob's heart... Jacob's doubtful heart foreshadows the unbelief of Israel, especially to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this account should also cause us to think, to think of another time when someone who was supposed to be dead was alive and appeared to 11 men who doubted the goodness and the reality of the moment. And like Joseph sent his brothers with the good news and the admonition to stay on message, Jesus commissioned his disciples to bring the good news beyond their homeland to all the nations, declaring that the one who died is now alive. How long is too long? How long is too long? Galatians says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. How long is too long? What if we learn to fear God? What if we make it a priority and our theology is tight so that our good theology informs the way we live our life? Because that's exactly what happened with Joseph. He could have adopted Egyptian theology, lowercase t, but he held on to the one true God. And it was his fear of that God and his understanding of who God was that enabled him to make the decisions that he made, to give the mercy and the grace and the blessing the wisdom to the people who needed it, who were probably asking, how long, right? And you have that opportunity today because you're facing challenges. You're facing the times in your life when you can definitely get wisdom elsewhere. Hold firm, fear God, seek him first. Let him bless you because you fear him and he will. And let the how long Go to him. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good. And in our weakness, we, we ask how long. Help us to ask instead, how can we fear you better? How can we know you better? How can we understand you better? Help us to be those kind of women who fear you, who trust you, who seek to bring mercy and grace and peace and blessing to those in our life because we have walked in truth with you. Bless these women now in their final chapters. And bless us as we go home to our families, our lives, growing in our ability to fear and love and trust you even more. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, 